This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. You know what I love about these podcasts is that you never know the direction the conversation is going to go in. Carla Brower is a taxidermist. She's actually a very specialized taxidermist with desmid beetles. Those are the beetles that eat the flesh off her skulls. She specializes in European skulls. But this conversation starts with taxidermy and deviates into the realm of veganism, death, and communication very, very quickly. I absolutely loved it. For 35 minutes, this is hard-hitting, iron-sharpening, iron conversation. Exactly the kind of podcast that we want to build, that we want to develop, and we want to push out to you guys. So enjoy. All right. A question that I'm obviously curious about, and I'm sure our audience would be curious about, what skulls have you worked on today? <laughs> That's a really good question. Okay. We have bear, deer, dog and cat, rat, 
feel like I'm forgetting somebody. Oh, a pronghorn okay. and a longhorn steer. So, yeah, I think that's everybody. Okay. I, I probably laid hands on a couple of different species that I'm forgetting, but. <laughs> okay. I think everyone can appreciate the pronghorn, whitetail, mule deer, bear, dog, cat, rat. Mm. It may I, not I be something that we would think a taxidermist like yourself. Do you, would you consider yourself a taxidermist? Uh, technically, legally, I am. I don't do game heads like you know your average taxidermist. I, I specialize, so I do primarily European mounts, so skull mounts. Um, I do full skeletons and articulations of skeletons, and I do hide tanning, and I dabble in taxidermy, like I do. Um, paws for people who want like their dog and cat paw or you know i i'm kind of very open to suggestions as far as we go <laughs> and, and behind the scenes don't tell everybody yet um i am starting to work on some bird taxidermy just for my own joy oh okay yeah so before i get into what i was that just popped into my brain because as you will find out my brain goes in a thousand different directions <laughs> i we have a lot of, of, of different things to talk about. Well, let's just introduce you. Firstly, Carla, uh, introduce yourself to the audience, please. I am Carla Brower. I am a former vegan turned hunter homesteader who lives in Oregon, and I run a skull cleaning business and pet memorial taxidermy service. Okay, so the pet memorial stuff, that's the dogs and the cats? Dogs, cats, rats, reptiles, birds, all the things. Tortoises. So, I know a lot of wouldn't tortoises. that just be tortoises? Yeah, people love to preserve their shells and they're so beautiful. Okay, so I can get that. I get that. So what are people preserving about their dogs and their cats? They're not just getting the ashes. You're not, you're not a crematorium, are you? I am not a crematory, but I work with an aquamation facility, which is a water-based, more environmentally friendly crematory, and they're wonderful. So I do provide cremation services for my my pet families because generally speaking, if I'm cleaning their pet skull, I'm not going to just hand them their headless dog back and be like, here, go deal with the body. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what would they do? with? Are people taking their pet skulls and displaying them in their homes as like a memory? Yeah, so the vast majority of what I do is um, skull and skeleton cleaning for people's pets. And um, mostly skulls, but more and more common that people are wanting the full skeletons because there's lots of really interesting bones that uh, some people are taking home to articulate themselves. Some people, and when I say articulate, I just mean like wire it together in a lifelike pose. Yeah, yeah. Rather yeah. than like a little loose pile of bones, you'll have something like you see like the dinosaurs articulated in museums. So they look really interesting. Um, some people do that themselves. Some people have us do it for them. Um, I do a fair amount of hide tanning for people's pets. So, you know, whether it's like full body or just like a little square or special marking that people can keep. Um, you know, I had one lady say it best where she was like, I just can't imagine never petting my dog again. I was like, hey, you don't have to stop. Wow. And I know, I know it's not for everybody. But Isn't that, that's super weird. Well, weird is always in the eye of the beholder because I mean. Oh, that is very true. That is <laughs> yeah. very true. 
because what is, you know, how weird is it to take your pet and throw them into an 1800 degree oven until there's nothing left, but like very tiny little flaky bits of bone, which is what we'd normally do with our pets. Um, so yep, that's what I did. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's only not weird because it's something we've done for a long time. Uh, you know, I think to me, it's very normal at this point. I've been doing it for so many years. I'm like, oh, yeah, you want your pet skull and your pet's head and cremate the rest of the body. <laughs> Isn't that so true to so many different parts of society? Exactly. Yeah, like a lot of people think that hunting is weird now, but you look back historically, it's more weird to not hunt than it is to hunt. Mm, very good point. Very, very good point. And the people, the kinds of people that hunt, right? So it's uh it's um you you're hitting it's funny your your taxidermy business is almost like this philosophical outlook on <laughs> that it's the it, it weirdness is I guess in the in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, and I mean I it is and it isn't philosophical to me. I think about death a lot, and I think that kind of confronting and talking about and, you know, analyzing what death means and how we remember things after they're no longer with us. Um, you know, whether it is like a very special family member mm -hmm. that is your four-legged, four-legged furry friend, or whether it's an animal that you've harvested in the field, you know, the point of taxidermy and taxidermy related services is to take that creature that's passed beyond and keep it with you somehow. And I always think that's really interesting, not just, you know, uh, confronting death itself, but how we process it and how we remember it and how we kind of incorporate that moment into our lives. Do you think that that's, uh, I, I have my own um, feelings about why hunting is almost, you know, vilified whether why hunting is you know looked at very differently nowadays and one of the things that i believe in is that death like you just mentioned is very sanitized in today's culture not You're only just... sanitized it's not confronted at all you know we have i i <laughs> you know i used to be a very um hardcore vegan which means like no animal products no leather shoes no milk no dairy no eggs and Looking back on it now, I feel like it's not so much an uh, animal rights issue. It's more of like an anti-death issue. Um, mm. And, you know, I know there's a huge spectrum of what people think about and, and the ethics behind why people eat certain ways or, or, you know, choose diets that are ethical in nature. But to me, when I look back on my own thoughts and feelings at the time, it wasn't so much that it was about the animals having a great life. It was I didn't want their lives to end. I, you know, even if you told me they were raised so wonderfully and, you know, everything about it was humane and they had just, you know, they had no idea that their death was coming. At that time, I still would have been opposed to it because to me, it didn't seem right to have them die. And I think I've come a long way about thinking about how death relates to us. And I mean, death is like the great equalizer. We're all going there, whether we like it or not. I know nobody likes to talk about it, mm -hmm. but I think there is something empowering in talking about it and kind of accepting that this is ultimately all of our fates. Um, sorry, I took your podcast to like a super dark place. No, I like it. <laughs> I like it because it's, it's something that we have to talk about. And you make a phenomenal point in that 
you know, one of the arguments back from a hunter's perspective is when someone says you don't have to kill that animal. And, and I've never actually thought about it the way that you just articulated it. Our response is, but you know that that animal is going to die, right? It's inherently going to die. And when it does die, it's going to be violent. It's going to be cruel. It's not going to just pass away in its sleep. It's, this is Mother Nature. She is, excuse my language, she's a cruel bitch. <laughs> and she doesn't do things just haphazardly, right? It's going to be eaten. They're going to maybe be eaten alive. It's going to break a leg. It's going to suffer. It's going to be everything that what you used to be hated. That yeah. was, you know, that's, we don't want that. But what you just said is we want that. We don't even want to deal and grasp the concept that that animal is actually going to die. Yep. We want it to live forever. In, in theory, or, you know, I think, like you said, death is kind of sanitized in society. And I've had people who, you know, I, you know, will mention hunting or something in passing. And they're like, oh, my God, I just can't believe you could do that. You could go out there and shoot an animal. But, you know, these are not animal rights activists who are telling me this. These are people who will go to Safeway and buy meat that they know on like some level, they know that animal did not have a great life or death. And somehow the lack of participation directly in that kind of you can just kind of step back and absolve yourself of responsibility because somebody else is responsible for that farm somebody else is responsible for the slaughtering of that animal and the processing of the body and i think it's easy when you're a couple steps removed to pretend it has nothing to do with you um and yet you know when we go out there and hunt we are choosing to take responsibility a hundred percent so and you know to me that that responsibility extends and it's different for everybody, but it extends to, you know, taking that life to processing the meat to cooking it. You know, I try to be as hands on with all aspects of it as I can. Sure. Because to me, that life was special. You know, I sometimes I, you know, don't get to spend a lot of time watching an animal before, you know, I have an opportunity to, to take its life and bring it home for food. Um, but you know, this past Last fall, uh, I got to watch the mule deer that I harvested for three days straight. I just watched him do his thing. You know, I knew where he went to the bathroom. I watched him scratch himself. I watched him kind of lay down and interact with the other animals. And I felt like we had like a little, I mean, one-sided relationship going. And I'm not going to lie that the moment I, I took my shot and knew that it was a kill shot, there was a little part of me that was sad like it's not it's i think people think Both. that all we have is excitement and you know i think the media does a terrible job of portraying the hunting experience mm -hmm. but uh i'm not gonna lie i may have shed a couple of tears over that mulder's body um but and, and now that skull is in my office and i get to remember you know that animal and that experience and i need to remember it you know the the meat might be gone at some point but that memory and that memory encapsulated in that tangible item is with me forever. Mm -hmm. No, I think my grandfather told me once, my grandfather was a really big hunter. Uh, Northern China, Russia, Tibet, and then obviously all in Mozambique as long as he could until revolution took over Mozambique. And he told me, he's like, you know, if you don't have it, and I think it's written somewhere as well the way he said it, but 
if you don't have a little bit of sadness, then there may be something missing. Mm. And maybe you, you're, you've gone beyond what this thing is that is hunting. And it was almost a, I've never really thought about it until Blood Origins and until this, this, this thought exercise, you know, dare we call Blood Origins a thought exercise in trying to understand why we hunt. And I, I would challenge, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that may listen to this and go, oh, I'm never sad. And I may challenge that to say, really, is that, is that, is that truly true? Is you, are you just saying that because, you know, big macho guy, big red, you know, big redneck, you're not supposed to be sad when you kill something, you're supposed to be excited. And, and that's okay. Excitement is okay. And, and whooping and hollering is okay because there might have been a substantial amount of effort that went into what you just did. But there, even for maybe a hundredth of a second, a thousandth of a second, there was something there that inside your soul, inside your your psyche, you were just like, oh, I, I, I just did that, you know? Absolutely. I know it happens to me. And, and obviously, I, I don't want that feeling to go away. It may diminish over time. Uh, it may get strengthened over time, depending on the animal you chase, the type of animal you chase. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that it's easier for me to access those feelings when I'm hunting alone because I'm not a very overly emotional person, um, especially in public. So if I have a hunting buddy out with me, I may do a really good job of just being like, not going to access the sadness right now and look <laughs> and embarrass myself mm-hmm. in front of people. Um, but I, I feel like the hunts that are successful when I'm by myself, I have a little bit more mental space to kind of think about the whole process and, and kind of feel the feelings and, uh, without getting too touchy feely, because, you know, as soon as you take that shot, it's like, you got work to do, so you can't sit around. That's right. Long. Um, but I mean, if, if there are people out there who say, oh no, it's all excitement and no sadness, I would challenge them to, to get a little bit more introspective next time they have a successful harvest and just just see if maybe deep down somewhere there's a little bit of of sadness and i think you know that's one of the beautiful things about hunting to me it's complex and you can kind of take from it what you want and uh the feelings behind it and and the things that it teaches you it's not as simple as like you know you learn to track an animal and and go out there into the woods and, and have a successful harvest it teaches you patience and uh discipline mm-hmm. and and care. And I think that there are so many layers to that experience that, you know, there's, there's never going to be just one feeling. Right. hundred percent. So I'm intrigued in this person that was, this person that was vegan, this person that had, you know, would probably have, again, I don't know your personality, but could have been the person with the, the the sign on the side of the road saying, you know, death to all hunters kind of deal. Um, I have never given anybody a death threat. I will say that right now. <laughs> oh, you went one of those like truly, you know, and, and here's the other thing. It's funny you say that. And and I'm, I, I, I just did it. We as hunters, you know, we hate it when someone perceives us a certain way. Well, I just perceived a vegan. A certain way, right? This mm-hmm. radical. Uh, I thought I saw a study one day where 
they did a, a sort of a, a research piece on like who are the most radical people. And there was a survey to general public, like who are the most radical people? And I think the number one answer was vegans. <laughs> so, I'm <laughs> I sorry. Mean, the, you know, all stereotypes maybe come from somewhere, right? Like there were, there were contingents of animal rights activists that I knew when I was very actively uh, involved in that community that definitely took it to a level that I was not comfortable with. Um, mm -hmm. I remember there was only one time I, I took part in a demonstration, which is what we called protests, um, in front of somebody's house at about 9 p.m. And, you know, they had a, like a family and, you know, trying to sleep and waking up the neighborhood. We're all out there with signs screaming at them. And, I mean, I was... I kind of went because a bunch of friends are going. And at that time I was like, something about this is very wrong. And I never did mm -hmm. that. Again. But there were people who make, you know, that's what they do. They, they track people down and they go to their homes in the middle of the night. They try to, they take a, they'll go to work. They all, it's basically just a, a strong form of harassment. But one of the things mm -hmm. that I learned when I was vegan that translates very well into being an advocate for hunting now is how to be an effective communicator and how to, let somebody understand your side of the story a little bit because half the time when I was out, you know, I, you say I, I was the type to be standing on the street corner and you're not wrong. Um, I did an anti-fur demonstration in front of the San Francisco Neiman Marcus every Sunday from two to four. Wow. For four or five years, literally every, I was very committed. I was good friends with their security guard actually because he had to be out there with us. Um, but, and, you know, we're out there holding bloody animal signs and sometimes we have like a video going and, uh, these little, you know, cards we'd hand out to people trying to get them to boycott the store. And, um, a lot of these people were skeptically open-minded, I would say, where, okay. you know, if you, if you talk to them in the right way, you can kind of sway them and you can kind of get them to see, get them to understand why you're so passionate about it. Because ultimately at the end of the day, you do this because you're passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And so I learned what works and what didn't. And I use that still to communicate the things that I'm passionate about. And now hunting happens to be one of them. So, <laughs> so, so let's, I didn't know that. And so if you don't mind, I'd love to know a little bit more about that, like to the people that are listening to this and like, okay, I'd love to know a little bit more. How, how would you approach it? How would you, like we have, you know, we've been called gentlemanly in how we address people on social media. Full of respect. We're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. You can call us MF this, MF that. We're not going to call you that back. But rather, we're just going to ask you some questions to sort of unravel why you're in the position you're in and why you think the way that you think so that we can say, well, that makes sense if you thought this, but the truth may be like this. What would you say would be like, Step number one, if you, I don't know if you've even thought about it, and I'm, I apologize for throwing this on you. Oh, no. I mean, I think what you said is exactly right. I mean, first of all, I think you have to pick your battles because there are going to be people who, you know, I get a little bit of hate mail here and there. I, I did a TED talk a couple of years ago, and after the video went live on YouTube, I got death threats on all social media platforms and how to go on like a blocking spree. And there are people who come at you like that and you don't waste your breath. You block them, you ignore them and they go away. Um, 
And then there are people who are like, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't feel comfortable with this. And those are the people that to me is well worth my time to have a conversation. And the first thing, the first lesson (laughs) that I would give to people is don't try to convince them of anything. Your job is not to convince people that they should be a hunter or that they should love hunting. Your job is to communicate why it's important to you. Um, And they can take that for what it is. But I think, you know, if people kind of get a glimpse into what, what it makes it special and meaningful and why you bother to participate in it, then I think they're going to come away with a little bit more respect for everybody who hunts. And um, there is a term called cognitive dissonance that I think is really important for people to understand. And it is a good reason why people don't take well to being told that they're wrong. So you can come at somebody with all the facts and figures in the world. And if you bombard them with all the scientific proof of why hunting is wonderful and why, you know, we give X amount of dollars to conservation and we're actually doing more help than harm. And if somebody just doesn't want to hear it, they're not going to hear it. You know, if, mm-hmm. unfortunately, just listing of facts and proving people wrong doesn't hurt, doesn't help. And then it actually can hurt people's likelihood of, uh, because you're basically telling them that who they are as a person and what their ideas are, are incorrect. And people don't really take well to that. So I think having like a gentle hand and just having focusing more on having conversations than um, I guess like trying to convince people of anything is a lot more sure, effective. Sure. What about the whole honesty approach? Well, that's one of the things that we've tested and it seems to work pretty good is when someone says, ah, oh, you know, trophy hunters suck or whatever, you know, you're like, yeah, I get it. I get why you say that, yeah. but have you thought about this or have you, do, do, do you know X or do you know Y? And it's almost like a, a, I, the way that I feel, it's almost like I'm coming across to you and say, hey, I get it. Mm-hmm. I get why you feel that way. We have an issue. We have a PR issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I think establishing common ground with people is a really important way to bridge gaps. And I think no matter how far, I know we live in this world that's telling us we're politically and socially and all these things, there's so many divisions and everybody likes to create labels and put everybody in boxes. But the truth is we're all human beings. We have so much more in common than we have apart. And if you can just relate to somebody as another human being who has strong feelings about something, you know, I have friends who are vegetarian and vegan still, and I respect them for that. And they and I, we've established the common ground of we care about animals. That's why they're vegan. Right. That's why I hunt. We go about things in very different ways. And mm-hmm. we may, you know, respectfully disagree with, you know, small choices. But on the whole, we get each other and we have the same goals. We just go about things differently. And I think there is so much more common ground with other people than we give it credit for, whether it's politics, hunting, whatever. Uh, and it's a little unfortunate that sometimes we don't try to see that a little bit more. No, it's absolutely true. Like uh, I've said it in the past, vegans and hunters are closer than they think. Because as you say, if you had to ask a hunter, when you step back from a wildlife perspective, what do you want? The answer is going to be, I want more wildlife. Mm -hmm. If you ask a vegan, 
what do you want from a wildlife perspective? A vegan will probably say we want more wildlife. They'll probably also say we want healthier wildlife. We want freer wildlife. They'll add some adjectives tied to it. But essentially, it's the same thing. Yeah. And as you said, it's just the the mechanism, the tools utilized to get there just happen to be different. Exactly. And, you know, there are going to be people who are really comfortable with hunting. And there are going to be people who feel like they would never be comfortable pulling the trigger on an animal. And for those people, maybe, you know, the best ethical thing that they can do is eliminate factory farm meat from their diet in whatever way they can. Um, You know, maybe if I wasn't comfortable, you know, personally taking the life of an animal, maybe I'd still be vegan. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, I've, I've challenged myself on those in those ways. And I think other people maybe aren't always up for it. But (laughs) deep down, I think everybody's capable of it. So what 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 caused you to change like what was it and like what was this breaking of the camel's back that was like whoa i don't think i'm vegan anymore <laughs> well it it kind of started with um meeting a woman who rescued some factory farmed chickens who were now living in her backyard and laying okay. eggs and i was a hardcore vegan at the time i met her because i was a journalist and Uh, did a story about her rescuing these birds. And then I would see her every week at the farmer's market selling their eggs and she would market them as vegan eggs. And I was like, wait, vegan eggs doesn't exist. But it was just kind of a way to kind of of get a conversation going about it. And eventually I did. I was like, you know what? There's nothing wrong with these eggs. She's taking care of these birds really well. They came out of a bad situation. They're basically getting an awesome retirement. They all needed medical care. Um, so she was fundraising with the sales of the eggs to take care of the birds. She's not just pocketing this money. Okay. Um, and so I bought some eggs from her and I eventually came around to even eating them, um, which was a, a, felt like a very weighty decision at that time. Well, it was because of you had decided you could do that because of, and I don't want to put a word in your mouth, but if it sounds like because of the story behind the acquisition of that piece of resource that egg it met your terms your ethics of why you were a vegan at the time exactly because my choice to be vegan was always an ethical one had nothing i was not healthy like i was i weighed probably 40 pounds more than i do now (laughs) so you can be vegan and still have a terrible diet don't worry um but yeah, so it was a totally ethical choice. And I, I looked okay. at those eggs and I was like, there is nothing unethical about eating them. It was still, it, it felt you know, difficult for me to get past that hump though, because this whole time I've been saying animal products are bad and vegan products are good. And this kind of cracked open the gray area a little bit uh, where I'm like, okay, maybe there can be animal circumstances. Products. Yeah, there are the right, under the right circumstances. I can be comfortable eating this and knowing that this still matches within my ethics. And then, you know, that also kind of begs the question like, oh, am I, you know, pre-packaged Trader Joe's burritos from a million miles away, you know, the most ethical food, even if they're vegan? Because, you know, once you realize there could be animal products that are ethical, you're like, oh, maybe not everything that doesn't have meat in it. It doesn't make it automatically like the best, most ethical decision to eat it. So. (laughs) Right. So from eggs to hunter, that, that's still quite a big leap. 
Yeah, it, it was. It took a minute. Um, I <laughs> I started eating eggs on on Sundays. Actually, I would have eggs as my special meal of the week because they're also like you know seven dollar a dozen eggs or something. Um, but over time, you know, I I had been really involved in the animal rights community. I wasn't just vegan. I you know was I worked for an international animal rights organization. I spent my free time going to protests and stuff. I did conferences and all that kind of stuff. So I was really 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 involved in it. Um, and part of that meant I had to educate myself really well on things like factory farming. And I read a book. I can't remember what it's called, but it was um, from one of the, the the people who ran Neiman Ranch. I want to say I'll, okay. I'll have to find it and send a link. But it was a book basically about uh, another person who was, I think, vegetarian and then learned enough about a particular farm to start eating meat again. And it kind of just got me curious. I'd always really wanted to get into farming. At that time, I, in my head, it was just vegetables. And I mm-hmm. applied for an internship at this vegetable farm just to kind of get my foot in the door and learn how to grow my own food. And, you know, I had like a little salad bar going on my fire escape at the time. And um, they were like, Oh yeah, we have chickens, you know, where if you're, you know, uncomfortable with it, uh, that's okay. But we do slaughter them when they get older and they stop laying eggs. And I was like, Oh no, like, I don't know if I am comfortable with it. And it just, and, but you know, that it kind of made me realize that growing food, vegan or not, it, it's all part of a big circle of resources. You know, those chickens that they fed, they would go out and they'd fertilize and they'd do bug control and you know, it made me realize how you just there is no vegan farming. <laughs> you know, every time you're using the land to produce a resource, you're dealing with you know wildlife. You know, you've got pest control issues. Um, you need fertilizer, which often comes from animals, mm-hmm. and it just makes a lot of sense to incorporate animals into a healthy kind of farming ecosystem. So that kind of got the wheels turning there, and then I. Um, I ended up quitting my job and kind of going on a whirlwind tour of a bunch of farms and doing kind of live work situations. And they all had animals. And I kind of was like, well, you know, I'll see how it goes. If I just want to stick with the vegetables, I will just do that. And I'll just kind of turn a blind eye to the rest of it. And well, as it happens, animals have a better personality than like potatoes. So for sure, (laughs) I ended up being very drawn to working with animals. And um, the first farm I went to raised angora goats um, for fiber. So it was a little bit of like a, you know, we're not slaughtering them right now, but they did have cattle and we ended up slaughtering one of the steer, uh, a steer at the end of my stay there. And it was a really intense, but like also really eye-opening experience because I was mm-hmm. like, at first I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to be there. And then I kind of like got obsessive about it because I'm like, okay, if it's gonna happen while I'm here, like I totally want to understand what to expect and what's gonna happen. Sure. I was reading all these books on like home slaughtering and butchery, and um, I kind of like got it all worked up in my head. I was like, okay, I can do this. Here's the plan. You know, it's only gonna be dead. It's only gonna be in the process of dying for like a couple of seconds, and and then maybe I can help with the meat processing. And it turned out that um, you know they brought that steer out and they shot it right in the head and it went down with hay still in its mouth and um we got it got right to work on it and i i jumped right in and helped skin it and butcher it and it turned out that it was totally fine and i wow i actually kind of enjoyed getting to be part of that experience uh don't strongly recommend working on a steer if you've never butchered anything before 
maybe something a little bit smaller <laughs> for people who want to try this at home. Uh, but it was a very much a learning experience. And it made me realize that like, oh, I, okay, I can be comfortable with this. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. It, it, it's almost like the whole f- reason why we do Blood Origins episodes is that Blood Origins episodes are meant to communicate the heart of a hunter. If you don't know a hunter, here's one way for you to understand a hunter, see a hunter. Um, and what you just described is, is almost like you didn't know. It's the thing that you don't know, right? This thing that you you championed against for so long that you had this perception of what it was and what it was, yeah, what it was. And then when you actually got down to the business of what it was, oh, it turned out it was something completely different. Yeah, I think that's how a lot of things go. I think it's easy to be like, oh, I don't think I don't know if I'm going to be comfortable with that, and never challenge yourself to that to mm. see if you really are. Um, you know, I've asked myself that a lot in my life at this point, you know, like I, you know, slaughtering farm animals is a very different thing than going out into the woods and harvesting wildlife. And I didn't, I had to ask myself, like, am I going to be comfortable with this? Am I going to go out there and, you know, not feel like this is for me? Um, and so I was like, well, only one way to find out. So let's go try it. Now <laughs> yeah, it's a good attitude. It's a good attitude. It's funny. I don't know if you've listened to any of our podcasts before uh, this one, but um, we had a vegan, she, she's not a vegan anymore. She still considers herself a vegan and interesting. The, the way that you just talked about the egg situation reminded me of her. She's out the UK. Her name is Katie Hargreaves and Katie Hargreaves went and hunted a, um, I believe it was a munchak uh, or a Chinese water deer, sorry, a Chinese water deer. And I said to her, I said, well, what, what made it? okay you're a vegan you are vegan what made it okay for you to kill that animal and she goes because i knew that they were overpopulated i knew that they were hurting the environment i knew they were hurting themselves by being overpopulated and it wasn't a fault of their own it was a fault of us as humans and it was right for me to reduce the population through hunting. And that's seated very well with my ethics of making sure animals as, and she took it to beyond just the individual, right? She saw it as individuals being, having hurt, uh, being unhealthy, but also as a population, it not being good for the population. And she pulled the trigger. That's awesome. And I said to her, I said, did you eat the meat? Because it fit all the criteria. She goes, I didn't that time, but I think I'd be okay with it the next time. Interesting. And it was that whole situation, like you said, it's the, it, all that needed to be was rational, the, rational in, the rationalization in your brain to the thing that you are, your belief system. Okay, it meets all the criteria of the belief system. Huh, an exception to this thing that supposedly is bad, but it's, it meets everything that I, I believe in. Yeah. No, I think that's that's great. I, I'm honestly, I think that more vegans should become hunters, or at least think about it. Because I mean, what could be a more ethical way to eat, right? Especially if you're eating an overpopulated animal or an invasive species, like for yeah. of nutria, <laughs> nutria hogs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we certainly um, in our emails back and forth. 
did not anticipate this conversation. <laughs> I love um, to go where the wind takes me, you know. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, and you know, it's it's the kind of conversation that we we like to have on this podcast: hard hitting, iron sharpening iron, thoughtful, thought provoking type conversation. Um, so, thank you. Of course. <laughs> Any final words? From from Carla, the taxidermist. We don't even talk about your Desmond Beetles or anything <laughs> like that, man. We'll have to do this again. <laughs> Absolutely. We will oh, definitely do it again. I guess if, the, if there's any final thought that kind of matches all the things we've been talking about is just go into the world with an open mind and uh, try to listen more and convince people less and communicate your passions and what makes them important to you. And I think that will help people understand hunting and anything that's of importance amen to that thank you so much thank you so much for having me on well that's it for today i appreciate you listening as always leave a review share it with your friends and most importantly do what's right to convey the truth around hunting Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app.